0: Hi everyone, um, I'm Adam Bant, member for Melbourne, co-deputy leader of the Greens. I want to acknowledge that we're here. Thank you. Oh, Jesus. nice to stand up and get that kind of reception, she come here more often. Thank you. Um, it hasn't been my experience this week. Um, the, uh, can I ask the fellow panellists to please come up and um, take, take your seats up here? Uh, I want to acknowledge that we're meeting on Ngunnawal land and pay respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge that we've got a lot of unfinished business in this country and pay my respects to um, Indigenous people, our First Australians who are here in this room today. We, um, You're in for a good um, hour and a quarter because uh, we're debating, as, as is the way all day here today, but we're talking about some interests, some matters that are pretty close to my heart and I think all of our hearts and are crucial if we are to deal in any way with what I call the twin crises that we're facing right now. Um, One is the climate crisis, which we're witnessing um, unfold in the most tragic of ways before us right now, and we're being told that we've got a a few short uh, years to turn things around, otherwise um, parts of the climate emergency become irreversible. Part of the reason I think that it's become so difficult to deal with that first climate crisis is because of the second crisis, which is an inequality crisis, which um, has seen us seen in, uh, here in Australia with inequality at a 70-year high. It means around the world at the moment, um, the top 26 people own as much wealth as the bottom 3.8 billion people put together. Um, that is, and it's getting worse. That is the stage um, that we're at at the moment. and. Part of the reason that I think the inequality crisis makes the first uh, makes the climate crisis so much harder to deal with is that um, the inequality crisis comes off the back of several decades of changes, um, or in some cases, a couple, couple of centuries of changes, that have hollowed out uh, our capacity to have strong democratic institutions that might be able to stand up and deal with the climate crisis. So, I guess in a shorthand way of putting that, the climate crisis has arrived at the wrong time Um, had it arrived at different times it might have been something that people could have banded together democratically and said right we need to address this um, uh, otherwise we're facing an existential threat but instead it arrives on a scene where we've basically had three decades of neoliberalism which is I think one of the contributing factors to the inequality crisis that has left people feeling anxious about their place in life and left us here in Australia being a place where now for many people who are growing up we're at the point where even doing the right thing is no longer enough to give you a basic guarantee of security security at work or security of um, a roof over your head and um, you know people are now no longer um, you no longer a passenger on the train you're a customer who's urged to maximize their traveling experience and I think all of that and you see it with your electricity bills as well where everyone's been told that Um, wasn't it great to have a lot of choice? And, well, no, actually, I'd just rather my electricity was cheap and renewable. Thank you very much. I don't need to spend half an hour trying to decipher my electricity bill every time it comes in. But all of that, that certainly hasn't led to people being better off. And part of the reason um, for that is because of corporations. And corporations, as you've heard over the last, uh, uh, some of the other sessions, have managed to harness two of the other big trends that are happening and that have been happening over the last few decades as well, and that's automation and digitisation. Now, you might think that with the speed of automation and the speed of digitisation, that that could actually give us some massive opportunities. I mean, now, but if you think about it, in many ways, when we have... A surplus of food, but people are going hungry, it actually should just be a logistical task of working out how to get food from here to the places that need it. And when you think about it, that's what Amazon does every day, except they do it for profit. They don't do it for, on the basis of human need. So we've got the capacity now, through the rise of automi- automation and digitisation, to solve so many of the problems facing humanity, but we don't have control over them. Corporations have got control over them. And as um, Someone put it just on a tweet that I saw yesterday. Um, they said, what a sinister time that we live in where mixtapes used to be given to you by someone who had a crush on you, but now they're delivered up as algorithms by corporations. And um, I think that sort of sums up in lots of ways where, where we're at at the moment. And it's the third, the third element, as well as neoliberalism, the rise of automation and digitisation. The third thing that I think is, is contributing to the inequality crisis that we've got at the moment is... Probably the foundational violence at the heart of Australian society. Um, It's something that, you know, people think that when you um, found a society, well, you have an initial period where there's um, the foundation and then everyone moves on. But what we know is that in Australia it doesn't work like that, especially when your foundation of your society is based on disposition and enormous violence, because it's something that never goes away. And people who have been sought to be conquered are always going to fight back and are always um, going to survive. And you've got you then got a choice of either do you keep perpetuating the violence day after day or do you acknowledge that a wrong was done and sit down and try and work out, um, after a period of truth-telling, try and work out what the, the best way to go forward is. And all of these um, three sets of crises that underpin the inequality crisis together, I think at the moment, are all reaching a crunch point in Australia, and people are starting to realise that we can't keep going on the way as we are, especially when you add it on to the climate crisis. But the big question in all of this is um, how do you, if we understand that what that this economy that we've got is becoming more unequal, but the potentials there are becoming broader and broader, how would you democratise the economy in a way that would deal with the climate crisis and deal with all of those other crises? What are the things that we need to talk about? Um, if there was um and i'll introduce our panelists and turn to them in a second but just finish by saying if there was ever a need to um, think about why we need to democratize the economy it's summed up in a little piece that you'll find on page two of the age today it might be in the sydney morning herald as well turns out that earlier this week um, as new south wales was ablaze scott morrison was actually according to this report was actually in his sydney office uh, the sydney cpo office and he was meeting the CEO of Glencore, one of the world's biggest coal companies. He, he was meeting a coal billionaire in Sydney while the rest of New South Wales was burning. Um, that is how undemocratic our politics has become. Um, that symbolises, for me, the hold that the economy has over democracy and the other way around at the moment. And I think it's all of our tasks to work out together how we're going to break it. And we're going to do that by about um, quarter past three. Um, so you've got some. I mean, we've got some excellent speakers, and some uh, uh, who are going to speak for about ten, fifteen minutes each, and then we'll have a, a good uh, opportunity for questions. Um, John Quiggan sadly can't make it, so we're uh, um, we're not uh, going to be joined by him. But um, we have got Celeste Little, who I think many of you will know, who is um, a Māori woman and uh, opinion writer and is someone who's very, very um, uh, prominent and thoughtful, and I'm sure many of you would have read a lot of her work, and I think you're going to be... Um, oh, well, I'm certainly excited to hear what Celeste has to say, because she's also a very strong um, activist who also manages to meld that thoughtfulness with achieving social change. Claire Ozich, many of you will know from around the traps um, with the Greens, but may also not know that she used to be the uh, executive director of the Australian Institute of Employment Rights and is one of the few people in this room who's got a book to her name, which I think she's going to hold up. She might even sign sign for you if you want to buy a copy of it Um, and has put a lot of thought into the question uh, about future of work and what it would mean to bring democracy into the workplace. And uh, also, I'm going to be really excited to hear from Dr Elise Klein, who's a lecturer of development studies at the University of Melbourne. Um, who's got some pretty wide-ranging uh, research interests from conditionality in Indigenous policy, psi expertise in development interventions and women's economic empowerment. So I think you'll all agree that we're going to um, uh, be up for a great uh, afternoon of, uh, of talks and thought and then some uh, hopefully a good half hour for discussion. Um, who would like to... So can I ask you to please to welcome um, all three of our wonderful speakers? <laughs> I might invite Claire. Um, up to speak first. Thanks, Claire.
1: Hi, everyone. Um, great to be here. Um, I think Tim uh, just does such a service to uh, both the Greens but the broader community with the work that um, he does with the Green Institute and bringing um, the types of people he does together for these, for these events and these conversations, and I'm really pleased um, to be able to be a part of it today. I'm going to be speaking about workplace democracy, uh, so how what does democracy look like in the workplace, and why is that why is that important? Um, and really, it's important because what workplace democracy is concerned with is the power essentially is the power relationship between capital and labour, so the people that uh, have the capital, the people that own the businesses that own the the corporations that run the corporations, um, and the people that do the work. Uh, whether, and we're talking, you know, going from the sort of big multinationals down to, you know, your local supermarket. Um, the the concept of workplace democracy uh, covers uh, all all ranges of businesses. And like all forms of democracy, I just need to go closer to my head, a bit taller than Adam, <laughs> um, uh, is that it's really about the right of workers to participate uh, in the decisions that affect them. Uh, which is really sort of one of the fundamental notions behind all forms of democracy is the right of the people affected to be involved in the decisions that that are made about them or to be actually the decision makers uh, there. So I'm going to start by talking a little bit about what workplace democracy looks like in Australia now. Um, Heads up, it's not good. Um, Talk about a few different models um, and then um, um, ask a few questions at the end. So basically in Australia, there are really limited formal ways in which workers can be involved in the decisions that affect them. There's enterprise bargaining process uh, where unions um, sit down with uh, the employers to talk about um, uh, wages and conditions. Um, another area where there is some workplace democracy is around Occupational Health and Safety, where you might have an um, Occupational Health and Safety Committee uh, to talk about those matters. And those are really the only formal sorts of representative structures that we have in Australia, uh, legally anyway. Employees are otherwise under no obligations to sit down and talk with their workers. Um, actually, uh, in, a, in the capital... In the capitalist enterprises in which the vast majority of Australians spend their working lives, it's the board of directors of the corporation uh, that, uh, or that small, uh, major, small group of major shareholders that ultimately um, have the legal control over the day-to-day work of all employees. Um, so the, in law, anyway, in the formal structures, questions fundamental to the structure and operation of our workplaces and economies uh, remain what's called, in uh, sort of workplace relations language, the management prerogative. The primary vehicle, really, for workplace democracy, um, though, is through unions. So, we'll just take a... Uh, Celeste is going to talk a little bit more about unions. Um, she's the more active uh, unionist in the room uh, than me. Um, but the the union movement's also in a pretty dire, dire strait in Australia. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Um, the economy's undergone a series of big, uh, significant changes, um, the insecure work, uh, underemployment, et cetera. Um, but really, the main, uh, the main reason that unions are in such a bad way is that 30-year um, period of neoliberalism that Adam mentioned, one of its key, one of its sort of key purposes, and indeed one of its key outcomes, was to undermine collective labour. And in that, it has been really quite successful. And so in Australia, there are very, very restrictive laws governing what unions can and can't do. We have uh, no lawful right to strike in Australia, uh, except in very, very limited circumstances. And in fact, we've got a a current government that's looking to go further with its union integrity bill, uh, which would actually put restrictions on the ability of union members to actually elect their own leadership. So we're looking at Actually, undermining the very uh, democratic nature of unions, more or less their broader democratic role uh, in our society. And the reality is, that's not going to change in Australia for quite some time. Um, you know, the, the coalition, which is um, uh, very explicitly anti-union, is in government now. But even the Labor Party, which comes from the union movement, I mean, they went into the last election uh, with not. Uh, with not much of a policy platform to give workers back power um, uh, in, in, uh, in the economy, uh, so that 's not going to change for very long, so things are pretty dire, but having said that, I do want to just touch on a few uh, interesting things that I think are happening in the union movement um, that show that should give us some hope for the next um, for, the fu- uh, for the future. One of them is and you might have seen this. Um, is that there's been a merger between United Voice and the National Union of Workers. Um, United Voice is um, uh, uh, a union that covers uh, has quite a wide-ranging cover. It co- uh, covers hospitality workers, um, childcare workers, um, a range of other a range of other sectors. Um, And they've actually been quite—they're quite an innovative union—and they've um, been—they cover a lot of workers that work in quite insecure work, and they've been quite innovative in how they go about that. They've got a project running um, at the moment called Hospo Voice, which is um, attempting um, to try and reach particularly younger workers in the hospitality industry. Um, And in the United, um, in the National Union of Workers, you've also got a union which is, um, I think, one of the more innovative unions in the country, um, and they've been doing a lot of work recently um, around migrant workers, particularly in the agricultural sector. So you might have seen all those, might have seen that uh, sort of Four Corners, exposés on exploitation um, in the agricultural sector. Uh, the NUW's been behind a lot of that. Um, so the, the notion of these two unions, uh, which I think are two of the more innovative ones, as I said, coming together uh, to create a, um, a, another big super union, I um, it's actually quite interesting. And they're, and they're actually structuring their union quite differently to how unions have been structured in the past. So it's a, it's a space to watch. Um, I read a, uh, an article in The Age about this uh, merger the other day, and RMIT professor Anthony Forsythe was quoted as saying, really, you could view this merger as the last roll of the dice. If their approach and the innovations they've been using can't make it work, then there's not much hope for unions, which is... Um, <laughs> Um, could be seen as being a bit pessimistic, but I actually think it um, is hopeful. And there are a couple of other projects happening, and I'm sorry they're going to be a little bit um, Victorian-focused, um, but the Victorian Trades Hall um, set up a young workers' centre um, a few years ago, which kind of combines an organising approach uh, with a service approach. So they provide advice to young workers, but they also go out and organise um, young workers, and they've been a very key part of the push around wage theft in Victoria, Um, and you're going to see the uh, Victorian Labor government legislate wage theft in the next few years. And they've also established a migrant workers centre. So you're seeing seeing trade unions um, understanding that they uh, need to try different approaches to reach reach workers. Um, Another project that's perhaps a little bit more uh, interesting to the people in this room, Um, is that last week, the the Maritime Union of Australia, the Manufacturing Workers' Union and the Electrical Trades Union, along with Gippsland Trades Hall, launched a new report called Putting the Justice in Just Transition, Tackling Inequality in the New Renewable Economy. And what this report was about was these unions, who are primarily active in the Latrobe Valley, where Victoria has its uh, dirty coal-fired power stations, are coming together uh, to support... A very large-scale offshore wind farm uh, off the coast of Victoria, uh, and this report is about how they, as unions and their members, uh, who are the um, who are the people working in the coal mines and working in the coal-fired power stations, who know that those coal-fired power stations are closing. And I went to the launch of this report, and I. Uh, the secretaries of those unions got up one after the other and said, those coal-fired power stations are going to close and we need to be on the front lines of what comes next. Uh, and so uh, they've uh, they've come together uh, to back this offshore wind farm and in their report they talk also more broadly about the need for public ownership uh, of renewable energy assets, um, and uh, and how workers can be much more involved in the establishment and setting up of these these new industries. And I know this work's happening in other parts of the country too. Um, It's just a really good, clear example uh, of uh, how unions are starting to think um, very uh, carefully and very consideredly about um, the the, the transition uh, and how to re-engage concepts of workers' democracy while they're doing it. And the final example I want to speak to uh, in that space um, is uh, a cooperative energy retailer called Cooperative Power, which was actually um, the uh, the charge to set up this cooperative uh, energy retailer was a project of the National Union of Workers. so one of one of the reasons I think they're quite an innovative union. Um, and what uh, and it's, a, uh, it's now a project of both that, the National Union of Workers but also the National Tertiary Education Union um, and the Australian Services Union um, and Union Aid Abroad I think is involved um, uh, as, as are some uh, other organisations. And so this is a cooperative energy retailer. So it's a, it's a retailer owned by the people that purchase the energy through the retailer um, and they quite explicitly purchase uh, green, uh, energy from... Um, renewable power sources. Uh, so another example of uh, uh, workers taking, in this case, not their wages and conditions but um, an essential service like energy um, and and acting together um, to, uh, to create an entity, a cooperative um, to give them what they need, which is cheap and reliable renewable energy. <coughs> So that's just, I guess, a quick overview of uh, where the union movement's at in Australia. And uh, while it's pretty dire, there is some hope and there are some interesting and innovative things happening. Um, but I also just wanted to uh, touch briefly on other models of workplace democracy. So I, I finished there by talking about the energy, um, uh, energy... ..the cooperative energy retailer. And workers' cooperatives is actually one of the other models... Uh, one of the other key ways you can um, conceive of uh, worker democracy, and that's why I have my book, <laughs> uh, which isn't my book. I, I edited this book, but one of the uh, chapters in this book uh, is written by a really great guy called Dan Musel, who um, is a, uh, a very key part of the Earthworker Cooperative. Now, the Earthworker Cooperative is a workers' cooperative um, based down in the Latrobe Valley, so again in Victoria, uh, where the coal-fired power stations are and the coal mines are. Um, And they have a manufacturing plant where they manufacture solar heat pumps. And the whole idea behind Earthworker was understanding that that transition in the Latrobe Valley had to happen. Um, And the best way for unions to engage in that was to take control, uh, for workers to to take control um, and uh, and build a, uh, a democratic alternative to business as usual, where the workers themselves would own um, uh, own the business and run the business. Um, and in this case, it's, um, it's, it's one of the ways that the union movement, which in that part of the world is so embedded in the extractive industries, is looking at how they can have an alternative. In this case, it's manufacturing uh, solar heat pumps. Uh, and it's been, it's been a long, tough process for EarthWorker to get there, um, uh, but they're there now. Well, they're, they're getting there. Um, but they've also inspired other cooperatives. So, along with Earth Worker in Victoria, there's now a, a cleaning cooperative called Red Gum, uh, which is, again, a workers' cooperative. Um, and uh, I understand there's a, a community service workers' cooperative in Sydney called um, uh, That that Cooperative Life, and they provide NDI services and other sorts of community services. Um, and they started out as workers' cooperative. I think they're now workers' cooperative and a capital co- cooperative. So, a workers' cooperative is when... The workers are the ones that own the business. Um, a capital cooperative is uh, when you are a, you're a member of the cooperative, um, you buy you kind of buy into the cooperative, I guess. Um, but the thing about cooperatives is that they're not necessarily run for surplus profit. So they don't have the growth uh, imperative behind them. It's the, it's the members of the cooperative that decide what they're going to do, um, do both with how their workplaces are run. But then also um, with any um, surplus uh, that they make. So that's one of the more, I think, um, important um, uh, uh, ways of conceiving of workplace democracy. It's tough work, and there's not a great uh, deal of uh, Australia doesn't have a great tradition of workers' cooperatives. Unions have been um, have tended to be quite hostile to workers' cooperatives in Australia. Um, but it's certainly one of the one of the alternatives to think about. Um, just briefly on on um, one more. Uh, Corbyn's Labor Government in the UK is proposing um, capital sharing mechanisms. So I think they've got a proposal whereby all private companies employing more than 250 people would have to set up ownership funds and giving workers a financial stake in the companies. So this idea's been around for a while. Um, uh, Corbyn is looking to do it at quite a a large scale, though, so it'll be interesting to see if he wins and then be interesting to see um, how they do that. But that's part of their program um, to um uh, democratize the uk economy uk economy more um I, I think i've probably run out of time um but before i do before i finish i guess i just want to acknowledge that what i've been talking about is uh work as we kind of currently understand it um in our current um, in our current economy which is a ba- basically um an a in an an industrial capitalist economy so for a very long time we've understood that as, as the, the the kind of the primary power relationship being as I said before between capital and labor um, and I think one of the big questions for us going forward though is if if in fact our economic system is changing uh, from one form of capitalism to another form with the advent of these big Tech companies. If we're now moving into a into a form of um, capitalism which is based more on information and data than it is on, on extraction, um, what does that mean uh, for workplace democracy? And in fact, what does that mean for work? Uh, and I think that has quite profound implications for work, and then um, uh, as a result, for what workplace democracy looks like. So I'm not entirely sure that those models of workplace democracy that I outlined necessarily relevant going forward um, as we... Uh, I think they're relevant um, certainly in the short term and they're certainly really important um, ideas to think about. But I think we're also um, at a point where we're looking to actually redefine what work is because we all know there's a lot of work that goes on in our society that isn't paid labour, an enormous amount of work that goes on in our society that isn't paid labour. And how do we, how do we expand a concept of um, democracy at work that encompasses um, work that isn't just uh, paid work. Um, but I think that's actually probably a good segue to what Elise is going to talk about.
2: <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Claire. I, I want to acknowledge that we meet on the unseated and Stolen Lands of the Ngunnawal and uh, pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I also want to acknowledge that the work that I'm presenting has been developed on the and thought about on the um, unceded stolen lands of the Rwandri Um, and I thanked him very much and all the organisers um, for having having me. So perhaps I can start by saying that whilst there are many important efforts uh, underway to make current employment conditions better I wanna say that we need to go further and recognise that the institution of waged employment or wage labour is not democratic and never will be. I say this at a time where some parts of the left are bunkering down to protect wage labour as a central institution of settler society and they go no further. And I think we need to ask the question, is this the best we can do? And so part of that, I think, is specifically because if we want a truly decolonial, uh, anti-patriarchal, ecologically abundant pluriverse, we need to redefine what we mean by productivity to include all forms of work. So in my time, I'm gonna try and outline why I think this is the case. And briefly suggest a few areas that I think might be useful going forward but can I just make it clear I do think the efforts to improve what we got are important but we can't stop there Um, and we and we need to continue efforts to transition to post work. So the problem with employment and wage labour. So we know already that there are some serious issues with the idea of wage labour. We know that there's the perennial contradiction uh, between the political system of income distribution that revolves around wage work and an economic system that does not provide an adequate number of dignified and full employment for people. And in some parts of the world, that's up to 90% of the people um, who are working in in the informal economy, which actually is the global formal formal economy, and especially if you include agriculture. This is further complicated through changes in automation and of course macroeconomic policy. Second, there's a problem with the quality of the employment available to us, um, between what it is that we imagine that work should be like um, and can do for us, and on the other hand, the daily grind of most jobs. But I want to add a few more other structural issues as to why we need to rethink wage labour. Firstly, many jobs in the global north rest on inequalities in the global south. We have a global economy set up through colonisation, which is more like a racialised global factory in that the formal economy relies on the informal economy. This is where the majority of the world's workers are without any labour protection and without any economic security, just living to make ends meet. In thinking about how the formal economy here uh, relies very much on the informal economy, we can think about the global supply chains of consumables. The head offices of, say, something like Haynes, the maker of bonds, Burley Dunlop, may comply with workers' rights here in Australia, although that would that be questionable. Um, but their whole business model is based on exploitative informal labour in places like Bangladesh. So thinking globally about the world of wage labour and and labour more broadly, it's like like the colonial plantations never ended, where informal workers are consumed to produce for the global markets, but hardly can reproduce themselves because of the poor uh, paying conditions they get remunerated with. Second, and thinking about Australia more specifically, the institution of wage labor is a settler colonial institution and has and is being used to legitimize attempts of elimination there's lots of lots to say here, but um, you know there's a long genealogy of the ways in which these ideas the settler ideas of the good first Nations person as a worker in settler society has been a marker as to which um, has been made so that people live and people die. Um, Just thinking about the East Kimberley where I work, uh, um, people refusing to work for rations on stations um, and and who tried to stay on country were hunted and and were slaughtered. Uh, That pastoral industry grew only because First Nations people's labour went unpaid or for rations. And the unviability of that was shown very much in the 60s when uh, pastoralists were forced to pay people a minimum wage. The pastoral industry fell apart. But more recently, this idea of wage labour is being used against First Nations people. Something like things like CDP, basics card, transitional housing, cashless debit card are all trying to be used to change First Nations behaviour into more into those more amenable to taking on work. This is a form of assimilation. The point here is that there's an assumption that people are unproductive, but there's heaps of research showing that people undertake all sorts of work across the Kimberley and elsewhere, including care of country, which is a very different ontological basis than settler work. But also, on top of that, care of children, care of elderly, care of community, and all of this work is unpaid. In the 2016 census, for example, First Nations people in the East Kimberley undertook way more childcare labour than that of the settlers, showing that people are more productive um, in this highly valuable form of work. Yet in policy and in some parts of the settler public, they are passed off as unproductive and all the rest of that racial, racialised discourse. I think it's also worth noting how the settler economy is based on the work First Nations people have done and do in looking after country since forever. The stolen land underpinning the economy is productive because it has been looked after. The settlers of Melbourne couldn't believe their luck when they first arrived to the pastoral lands they found, not because it was empty, but because it had been worked and cared for for, since forever. The same kind of thing can be said about um, government plans for developing the north, Uh, They see it as an untapped future for um, for Australian development, Um, but it's it's productive um, because of all the care that gets put into it. Third, since Federation, employment and wage labour has always been used to define people as deserving or undeserving. It has been the key metric used to construct borders between bodies and create social hierarchies. People not working or unable to work, often because of poor functioning labour markets, are subject to social exclusion. A person's role in the formal labour market has been a key instrument in defining who matters and who doesn't, often with racialised, gendered and ableist implications, from eugenics uh, to now welfare conditionality. For example, wage labour has been a driver of ableism where non-abled bodies are defined by their ability to be productive for the labour market. Disability is often thought as a body that cannot work or where abilities to take on wage labour are eroded. This overlooks and systematically excludes the range of productive abilities people have. Indeed, it's our conception of productivity driven by norms underpinning wage labour is what disabled, disables bodies, not some individualised condition which it's often made out to be. On gender, the institution of waged labour has long silenced the reproductive and effective labour that capitalism relies on, which is mostly carried out by women. It isn't enough to integrate women into getting formal jobs, as we still do most of the unpaid care work that sits outside conceptions of economy. We need to go further and see how this unpaid care labour is a fundamental aspect of, the form, of formal labour. There is no formal labour if our mothers didn't grow us, feed us, raise us, care for us. It has long been argue, argued by feminists, wages, For example, the Wages for Housework campaign in the 70s argued that housework should be remunerated as it enables capitalism to take place. As Silvia Federici says in Language Warning, we do the cooking, smiling and fucking that capitalism requires to function and all of it is unpaid. The idea of this this, um, Wages for Housework campaign in the 70s was not to stop at getting um, wait, wait, not to stop at just getting the wage for housework, rather they saw it that when they got this this this, this payment, and it gets re- the work gets remunerated the next task was always to overthrow capitalism and the whole waged work relationship. This re- this struggle remains today. Unpaid care work continues to underpin capitalism. PwC just found that unpaid childcare is the biggest industry in this country. It is around three times that three times bigger than the financial industry sector, which is Australia's biggest sector. Um, it's also three times bigger than construction, three times bigger than manufacturing, and three times bigger than mining. If you combine all the other unpaid work, but only that that's measured in the census, um, such as volunteering, looking after the elderly and domestic work, if you put them together, they are also bigger than those paid sectors. But this unpaid care work is overlooked and increasingly outsourced, often to women in the Global South who are paid poorly for this once unpaid care work of the now, the middle class in the Global North. My point here is that capitalism and its centrality to wage labour cannot structurally resolve these issues because it's part of the problem. Efforts around improving wage labour can help while we are transitioning, but from my perspective, we need to go—we need to get much bolder and more creative if we really want to demo, democratise work. One part of the direction we can move towards is de-linking economic security from employment. Something that a universal basic income, as a rightful share in wealth generated, may be able to do. I say rightful share to describe universal basic income and not other names such as citizen's dividend because rightful makes us question, well, what is what rightful? And particularly here, does everyone in this settler colonial society get the same amount when we live on stolen land? There is a possibility to build into ideas of UBI Um, um, reparations as part of what is rightful, such as proposed by the Black Lives Matter in the US. In their model, everyone gets a UBI, but people of color get more as a form of reparations for the years of slavery and Jim Crow. But a UBI is never enough alone and must be accompanied with a shift in how we think about productivity to avoid exacerbating social hierarchies and gender divisions of weight, rage work, and un- unpaid work. I've hinted at some of the ways already people are very productive care work, care of country, but also artistry, protest, the list goes on. My point is that there is so much work we all do but we're confined by conceptions of productivity driven by norms underpinning wage, labour and capitalism. Something like care, defined way beyond the domestic realm, provides some really important ways in which we can help reconfigure productivity. Care shows us very real practices that emancipate, which are already underway, and it's all around us as the concrete work of effect and maintenance and as the vital politics of interdependent worlds, such as in caring for, with, and about others, human and non-human, and in taking responsibility for our political and economic complacency, and in caring enough to listen and to act. There is a real possibility to emphasise the potential of care to disrupt the status quo and to unhinge processes already underway leading to what uh, Professor Tony Fry calls our defuturing the unraveling of life from ecological and economic crises. There's much to say, of course, but I hope we can discuss and and think together on this. Thank you. Hi
3: everyone. Before I begin, I wanted to also acknowledge the Ngunnawal people and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. I also wanted to acknowledge that we're meeting on unceded stolen lands and that a treaty or um, agreement for the correct use of these lands is yet to be negotiated. Um, I'm an Arunda woman from Central Australia, but right now I'm finding myself back on the lands on which I was born. So, um, and Janara Garangarang and Please excuse me, Um, I asked to go last because I'm the least prepared out of all the panellists today, um, mainly because of illness and um, a whole heap of other stuff that's obviously been affecting our community this week. But um, Janara Garangarang gave me an easy in to explain why this is because she mentioned two men. Um, One of them was Charlie Perkins, and to me, Charlie Perkins was my great uncle, Um, and a lot of Mbantweregna were born in um, Canberra in the 70s and 80s because Uncle Charlie went back up to Alice Springs, saw a bunch of his nephews sitting around, not doing much, being wasted, being harassed by cops, brought them down to Canberra and put them in traineeships where they all entered the public service. So I'm the daughter of a black public servant. LAUGHTER um, the other one that she mentioned was Jill P. Randall. Now, um, Jill P. Randall to me was my was my pigeon um grandfather, and I'm not talking grandfather in some gam and white way. I'm stating that um, to me he was the youngest brother of my grandfather. Um, but my grandfather was Arinda, and um, as I've said many times. You know, little is a gigantic name in the desert. If they're black and they're little, I'm related to them. It's just the way it is. But part of the reason for that is that we all descend from one man who was a cattle station owner and who profiteered a great deal off the exploited um, labor of Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory and was actually considered one of the good ones up there, but still profiteered off free Aboriginal labour on stolen lands as he was able to. Um, so, t- I, I've decided to go backwards as a way of trying to introduce the forwards. And um, 2016, we've talked about a little bit about walk-offs on stations. Um, 2016 marked the 50-year walk-off um, anniversary of um, Wave Hill. Which started with wages, but ended up um, going, moving more and more towards land rights and that sort of movement. Um, one of my one of my favourite comrades within the movement, Cara Keys, who was the former Indigenous officer for the ACTU, kind of made a lot of jaws drop at uh, um, ACTU Congress a couple of years back when she when she busted one of the myths. And one of the myths around the Wave Hill walk-offs was that it was this brilliant time of Aboriginal activists, traditional owners and the union movement coming together and working towards that historic moment where Whitlam poured sand in the hand of um, Lingyari. Cara threw the spanner in the works by highlighting that actually at the beginning of the walk-off, the union movement didn't support the Aboriginal workers going on strike because they were um, receiving only a small percentage of what other workers were and the reason why the union didn't support the workers was at that very time, they were fighting for a higher pay claim for the non-Indigenous workers on the stations. Um, and the, the Aboriginal workers on that cattle station effectively ended up forcing the hand of the broader union movement because they were walked off, the labour was removed and the union had to come on board and start supporting its members. Um, when they did come on board, they came on board pretty well. And, th- you know, the sorts of things that included were obviously ongoing support, but also some of the unions um, had in place a members' levy raising money to ensure that, that that walk-off could continue, that protest and that fight for rights could continue on those lands. Now, as I said, it's been 53 years since, um, since that walk-off, that historic moment. Never did I think I'd come to a point in history where Aboriginal Or Strait Islander people are again expected to work for no pay. But here we are. The CDP, the Community Development program, has now been in place for four and a half years, and Aboriginal people, in a number of circumstances are being required to do 25 um, hours work per week um, year-round. they're calling it a remote work for the doll but it's mainly affecting aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who work, who live in remote communities um, and it's not just the basic community services that a lot of those of us who live in the cities are expect um sorry expect our our councils and our taxes to provide for but private enterprises are also eva- um are also able to sign on as CDP providers and profiteer of what is an endless source of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander labour. Um, I I, I always like highlighting this because every single bad economic policy that you can possibly find in my mind seems to be trialled on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people before it's rolled out to the broader population. We are the testing ground for bad policies. For further example, go to the basics card and now look at how that's being rolled out. Um, to move on a little bit, um, as Claire mentioned, I, I'm a unionist. I'm involved in the union movement. I'm actually that sad that I work for one union and I'm a member of two other unions and a supporter member of another. Um, And I started working, I started becoming a unionist when I worked in the higher education sector. Um, I was a university student for roughly 3,000 years. Um, Initially a science student somehow and ended up graduating with an honours in theatre and drama. Um, But my journey through higher ed was incredibly difficult Um, at that, well, let me try again. It was great when I found out what it was that I wanted to do, but it was difficult. I had no access to any financial support for the majority of that because, uh, you know, the lie that's perpetuated about us all getting ab study really doesn't work when your dad earns just over the financial threshold. So I was, I was only on whatever I could earn. Um, yeah, I... I don't know, I bounced between degrees and eventually found out what I was. But um, when that whole sort of getting into uni in the first place, I did barely enough work when I was at year 12 to get myself into uni. I hated high school and I did the bare minimum. And to get into uni, what I had to prove was that I'd been disadvantaged by my Aboriginality in order to apply for some special consideration to get in. Rather than there being um, only, I think, 19 Aboriginal students that went into higher education across the entire state of Victoria in the year that I did, and there being a need to address equity, I had to address that I'd been disadvantaged by my blackness. Um, yeah, I worked in the sector. I had to fight. I had no money. I I eventually got through. Um, I, I dealt with racist classes. There was one that... Um, One class that I did, where the lecturer came up to me in the um, in the main sort of food area of the university a couple of weeks later, noticing that I'd withdrawn, and she said, "Oh, I was really hoping that you could be there for when we had the discussion about the Pinterby that walked out of the desert in '81." And I'm just sort of, "Well, I'm not Pinterby," and you know. I'm not too sure what you wanted me to bring to this discussion so that being called on as a student to give free knowledge to the rest of the class I found very hard um, my journey through uni was ha- was so hard that when I finished uni I decided that I wanted to work at one um, so I haven't actually really left uni si- or school since I started it um, but the minute that I started working in the, working in the higher education sector, I realised that all of the issues that the, stu- the, the students faced in the sector were faced by the staff too. They still had to give out free knowledge to everyone. They're expected to do a lot of unpaid labour. We we're always fighting against this good, pure, white, Western canon knowledge that is, is, um, above, is, is valued above all else. And I noticed too that um, the only way that I was going to have any impact within that was to join the union and to become active within it. And through that joining the union and then eventually working in the movement itself, um, I've noticed that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people do join unions at higher rates. And I've got a couple of theories as to why that is. Um, The first is that I think culturally, we understand the concept of collectivism a lot better. It's part of our culture. We we practice collectivism every day through kinship, through through our um, rights movements, through everything else. Um, there's a, there's that historical collaboration between the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander rights movement and the union movement, um, and some of that is. Is purely historical. Some of that's more recent. I can think of when the ETU, for example, set up fences around um, one of the tent embassies to stop the police getting in and taking it apart. Um, We're more likely to face adversity in the workplace, racism and discrimination um, and seek out those support mechanisms such as unions in order to counteract that sort of stuff. Um, But finally, Indigenous labour has continuously been undervalued and one recent example I can think of that happened just in this this beautiful city that we're in right now is that expose that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, public service workers were being paid at a lower rate than what everyone else was. I'm sort of jumping around just a little bit because the democratisation, sorry, democratising the economy um, happens on a number of fronts for me and there's been a number of fights that have gone on. Um, women are still trying to democratise the economy. Um, recently, um, Zelda De Prano passed away and you know, back in, I think it was the late 60s when she chained herself to the Commonwealth building in Melbourne and her and her um, friends hopped on trams in Melbourne and refused to pay the same fares as men until they got equal pay. Those sorts of... It was pretty cool, hey? Those sorts of actions were part of the agitation that led to the Equal Pay Act, which has now been in place for nearly, what, 50 years and um, yet we 're still dealing with an equal pay act um, to the tune of about fourteen percent. The working lives in Australia are still very much based on the lives of white um, able bodied men things like parental leave um, as a universal scheme is 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 still pretty is still very much a, a new concept within australia um, and is deeply inadequate when you compare it to some more egalitarian societies across the world. Um, Things like childcare and aged care, which have been mentioned by my co-panelists, are both severely underfunded. And socially, these caring responsibilities still mainly fall to women. Um, We've got, as well as Aboriginal people, a number of other um, exploited minority groups racially. um, I remember within the union movement a few years back and I was having nightmares at this time um because some of it was some of the rhetoric was deeply disturbing to me we were hearing about the um 457 five, four, five, visas stuff and how this was being and so sorry the rhetoric that was disturbing to me was how this was being used to take Aussie jobs um and these jobs disappearing now that there's obviously a problem um, when these when these visas are being exploited but to me an opportunity in some circumstances was being missed and that opportunity was to build solidarity with severely exploited international workers who were being bought over here by gigantic corporations um, Going backwards, forwards, when you think of the blackbirding that happened in the cane fields in Australia, you can see that we've got serious form in this and we should be fighting it every single time it comes up. But some unions are doing some excellent work now, um, such as um, building relationships, building these relationships um, with factory workers from from diverse backgrounds, I mentioned Trades Hall and its Migrant Workers Centre, there's still so much more that needs to happen to plug those gaps, though, to ensure that these groups aren't continuously bought over for for these massive corporations to exploit. Um, There's so much more I could talk about, and unfortunately, when I'm given a microphone, I do tend to talk but um, I might just do some do some things to try and tie together what I've been saying and also hopefully tie together the panel a little bit. Um, but in, to conclude, there is so much more that we need to do within the world of labor. We need to accept that white cis men are not the center of the universe and that working um, experiences of other workers are valid and must be incorporated in order to build solidarity between workers. We need to delve further into unpaid labour and push towards compensating this properly um, in different ways or looking at different ways of how that can be compensated. For example, Aboriginal workers carrying cultural loads continuously and they're having to educate their workplaces at a drop of a hat, Um, caring responsibilities and that falling on women Junior wages, why do junior wages even exist? Why is the labour of someone who's younger considered not as valid as the labour of someone who's only three years older than them? Um, sorry, I, I scrolled this and I'm gonna read it out verbatim. Rich bastards need to pay a lot more tax. Um, <laughs> because apart from drawing on the exploitation of other people's labour, what else do they really contribute to society? And please don't say charity, because most charities actually exist due to society's failure to take care of its most vulnerable and a better social safety net will help alleviate that. And finally, through this solidarity, and um, we need to ensure that we are relevant to as many workers as possible and that we, um, that we can fight back and redistribute the wealth. All of the struggles are linked as the first panel of the day highlighted. And that fight, or those fights, can only be won um, when we really start recognising this intersectionality and working together to liberate everyone. Thanks.
0: Thank you um, so much. And can just have one more round of applause for those three amazing contributions. That was great. Claire, thanks, Elise, thanks, Celeste. All right. Um, time for some questions to any or all of the panel. Our Tim's going to do some runnings. Any, anybody want to kick us off?
4: Thank you. So just picking up on one of the things that um, you just finished with Celeste about um, rich bastards needing to pay tax, uh, and also the um, I guess the the critique of um, waged labour. Which um, you know I, I think that I agree with most of the points that that were made about that, and I think that you know it's also um, as I think you sort of said, Claire, you know somewhat inevitable that the the nature of work is going to radically change um, anyway, but the next question that that always sort of raises for me is I guess what are the what does it look like to make the rich bastards pay from a policy perspective, um, like what what do we do to sustain our tax base, which currently relies on you know, 40% personal income tax and so on, if we are going to move away from wage labour and, yeah, just whether you had ideas on that.
0: I think we'll take three questions and one thing will go to all the panel.
5: One, one problem that I hope the panel would say something about is what is basically a problem with the economy when the uh, governments say growth of GDP is what we aim at. Uh, Other things like uh, what's better for the planet, what's better for the community is not really worthwhile. Now, internationally things have happened a bit there. New Zealand has taken some very important decisions and um, there is something called the genuine progress indicator that is raising a lot of interest all around the world. Have you got any views on this, the future of that?
6: Yeah, good day. Scotty from uh, Cooperatives, Commons and Communities Canberra. Um, yeah, uh, interesting what you're saying about the unions um, starting the co ops. There's one in Canberra which is uh, a bunch of Karen refugees who got really badly exploited in the cleaning industry, and the United Voice locally has set up uh, the Harmony Cleaning Co op alongside those guys. So that's one for the locals. Um, now, from the last panel, I reckon this is a really great follow-on work. How do we get that democratic experience into the general society? Through the workplace is ideal. It's bloody everywhere already. If we can get democracy in there, fantastic. So, Canberra is trying to set up a cooperative commonwealth, essentially, to build the whole economy through cooperatives, commons and communities. We're designing climate co-ops to bring the the social justice concepts of the cooperative together with the uh, the environmental needs that we have um, uh, at the moment so what would your design principles be because I'm working with design principles we need diversity in this and um, the the cooperative principles from the ICA have proved really good at uh, keeping cohesiveness within a movement while Allowing a whole lot of diversity and, and permaculture principles have done that again. So, what would the design principles be of a climate cooperative?
0: Thanks. Great questions. How do we make them pay? How do we measure something um, other than just straight growth? And what would be the design principles for a climate cooperative? Who, who'd like to go first?
2: Um, the first question about how you pay for it. Oh, well, I think there needs to be a limit on um, on how much people can earn. I, and then it's distributed right. across the board. I also think though I'm sort of a bit uncomfortable thinking about a basic income just for Australia. I think it has to be a global um, redistribution um, and then in terms of how that goes um, you know into the future well I think that would be a good a good step um in terms of mass i I don't think we're looking at a um, an economy without capitalism, but I think it's a, um, a diverse economy. I think it's a part of uh, all the other ways in which economy exists. I think capitalism is one, one model which has become the model, but we need to move in this transition to you know an economy or economies that include various different ways in which um, life is valued and exchange happens. So, um, you know, I think they'll always, so in that there is production of of wealth, um, but then I think there is a mass distribution that goes on. um, And I I do see a basic income as as being um, important in that. The question on GDP, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's some really interesting measures going around. I mean, Amartya Sen's work and the capability approach. And, you know, when I was in Oxford, I spent a lot of time. working on those measures Um, and, you know, I think they're all interesting and important but I think it's, they're still looking at universal measures Um, and I think this is problematic because um, people value, there's many different ways in which people value life and the world Um, and a lot of these sort of universal measures Still seem to have very um, colonial implications, and so they might be, you know, valuing all different, you know, interesting metrics, but they're all defined basically by the global north. Um, and so, I think what's important is to think about a pluriverse, um, you know, and this was the, um, you know, a, a Steve's sort of quote of um, a world within, a, man, a world within many, uh, many worlds within the world. Um, and I think we have to you know allow people to, to find their own sort of well, what I'm saying productivity but progress life well-being however you want to call it I think people should be allowed to define their own and, and at a much local level
1: On the cooperative question um, I think Amanda actually gave you the answer in her talk <laughs> with her seven uh, with her seven principles I uh, you know, I think, I, I think, and I think this has been commented on a few times um, to, today already. One of the one of the real challenges uh, that we face is uh, how to uh, how to work, how to have a common goal and work with diversity is is you know just it it is just one of the things that we're we're facing at the moment, and I, I'm not sure. I, I certainly can't give an answer to that. Um, uh, uh but i think the the previous session on deliberative democracy um gave us some pretty good clues as to to um as to ho- how to go about it um and uh uh, uh and I, I think there are um uh, i think there's a there's a a lot out there now and i can perhaps have a have a chat to you after afterwards about some some resources um and um uh, yes yeah, some other resources of, of people have been grappling with um, with cooperatives here in here in Australia in particular
3: I, I think um, and I'm probably going to combine the questions because I, I I don't quite know how to break them all down in my head um, and my head always seems to go back to education the question of education and how it can be used Um and you know, particularly with policy approaches to pay more tax. I mean, we're in a we're in a situation at the moment where um, where where the two major parties talk about tax cuts to the richest people in the country, and a bunch of the poorest people in the country start waving their arms, going, "Yay, this is fantastic!" Even though they're going to be they're going to be impacted by it. So. Broad social education and and shifting shifting the discussion a bit in society so that people people do have a better understanding of how they're how they're currently disadvantaged by this system. Um, because if they you know if they're waking up every day and if they're just going into work and stamping and all of that, um, they do seem to just believe that. They might be scraping by, but they are actually scraping by, and things could be so much better. So, so using using the knowledges in order to get that message out there to a broader thing. Um, the the democratic experience into society from cooperative um, workplaces. Again, like I said, I keep coming back to to education and the need to unpack and refocus. Um, one of the things that I commonly hear and I apologise. If I start going off track, I'm going to try and get back on it. But, but that all we need to do to alleviate racism in Australia is to educate people. But I've worked with some of the most educated people in Australian society with papers out there, Wazoo, and what's commonly forgotten is that education has been um, one of the one of the reinforces of racism. To the point of where you can't walk around many university um, universities without seeing buildings named after eugenics and and so on and so forth. Um, the Victorian education system, the, the the structure that's been been adapted since it was first um, introduced, but nevertheless, the the system that a lot of it's still based on today was based on a theory of eugenics. There, um, there being you know and an elite that could go on to university and a working class that should be encouraged through the tech system. Um, Everything that we're taught when we get into the system is about how you can be a viable economic unit. So, you know, education only exists, it seems, for people to get jobs at the end of it. It doesn't exist to have responsibility to other people, to work in, you know, work across... um, social groups and social fields it exists so that we can become viable units of production and that's it um and that's reinforced you know through through studies that look at job rates of people who graduate from university um through careers education so on um those very basis of what we what we teach people from the beginning all the way up to how we re-educate society um, as a, as a broader entity, so that they're not voting against themselves the entire time. Um, all those things need to be unpacked in order to, um, yeah, to make a lot of this stuff happen. Is the way I see it. I hope that I answered that in some way. Thanks.
0: The questions. One, two, three.
7: Um, I was really taken by the uh, the idea of the uh, the pluriverse. Great word. No. <laughs> just wondering if the panel would like to comment, if they're aware of the work of Samuel Alexander, who's worked with others in the Simplicity Institute, uh, regarding degrowth and um, you know living, living simply and the transition that would be required to make that happen. He often talks about the idea of building new economies and new society within the rotting carcass of the current one. Um, so I was wondering if the panel are aware of that work and have a you, you said degrowth? Yes. Yep.
5: Thanks. He's also, he's also the man responsible for the word apocaloptimism that Elisa used before.
8: Um, mine's a bit different, and it's different because it's about the... Um, I suppose it started with the Uluru Statement and them coming up with the poster boy, um, Thomas Mare, who as a result of becoming the poster boy for the Uluru Statement, is now heading up the CMFEU as the black go-to person who's going out particularly to remote communities, telling everyone to vote Labor. In these communities that are fighting against fracking particularly, who are signing up to the Labor Party and not realising what that actually means. So... How do we counteract that, given he's now very well paid and got a lot of power, running around with Uluru's statement in his back pocket, but also running around getting our people signed up to become members of the Labor Party to ultimately destroy their own lands?
7: Um, my, my question, uh, Chris from WACOS and Green Institute, was really around the dilemma as a community sector advocate around recognising the the value and social contribution of unpaid care. And, you know, we've had the problem with, with the community sector in the first place of kind of struggling to get that recognition, you know, winning an ERO case, but then not having governments pay the money. So the quality of the works actually got worse. But at the same time, where are we, you know how do we progress that advocacy so that we're on the one hand looking to how we move to that post-work world, but actually kind of making sure that the amount of care that is happening out there as part of the community is recognised, but we're not just talking about the care economy improving; we have a greater stimulus impact than construction work. Lots there
0: Think from any or all of it.
1: Um, so, yeah, unions... Extractivism, and the Labour Party. Um, yeah, it's a well-known uh, trio. Um, interestingly, that project that I mentioned down in the Latrobe Valley around the unions coming together around um, an offshore wind farm, and, and, ma- and, and I, f- I forgot to mention that part of that plan is to manufacture the wind turbines down there as well. The CFMEU is not a part of that uh, group, which I think is notable, um, given they're the mining, mining union. Yes, there is is a big uh, barrier uh, uh, within um, the union movement around um, the transition and the, well, it's not just the transition from, but the um, continuation and expansion of um, extracting um, coal and gas um, from the land here. Uh, And... One of the things uh, I find quite interesting around how the union movement um, approaches this uh, and its sort of concept of wealth and and jobs um, is that the the CFMEU in particular... that, That kind of mining sector in particular has been extraordinarily successful in dominating the notion of what a job is in Australia so that when we... In the political discourse, when we talk about jobs most of the, what's kind of mostly in our heads are these um, jobs of, of, of extraction, of, of mining jobs, of fracking jobs, of forestry jobs, um, whereas actually, <laughs> are we, not just, is that just not representative of um, uh, the majority, you know. It's a very small section of the jobs in Australia it's a, and it's a, a slightly larger but still small um, part of the wealth creation in Australia. But even in the union movement, the largest union in Australia the, at the moment is the nurses union. Um, you know, the other big unions in Australia are the are the the, um, the, the, AU, the teachers union. Um, so actually the biggest unions in Australia are unions dominated uh, by women. Uh, I think there are a couple of things going on here I think that there are other parts of the union movement uh, that need to stand up uh, 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 in favor of a politics of life which is in favor of a politics of addressing climate change and not uh, and not continue to extract coal and gas I think there's responsibility um, for those other unions to um, stand up to this really quite rea- uh, reactionary um, Elements of the elements of the of the CFMEU, um, and then the other the other aspect of that um, Lydia, that you're talking about is the relationship between the union movement and the Labor Party. Um, I my my view how, is how long have we got? <laughs> yeah, we won't go into that in, in, in heaps of detail, but I mean. I think for the union movement to to survive as a um, as a genuine force for social change in Australia, the union movement has to decouple itself from the Labor Party. Um, has to decouple itself from the Labor Party. Um, they. I don't care what happens to the Labor Party if the union disappears um, from them. I mean, the Labor Party would be in trouble if, they, if the union movement disappears from them. Um, but the union movement's. Uh, real hope um, to continue and, uh, and, and be a vibrant force for change in Australia it has to come with decoupling itself from, from Labor. Um, and that's got to come from some of the other unions that are actually starting to understand uh, the, the stuckness, I suppose, of the Labor Party.
2: Um, on Samuel Alexander, I haven't read his work so closely, but I do know degrowth. And i just say that... Um, Degrowth, I think, is quite, has been quite a Global North kind of project. And, I mean, it's used in the Global South, of course, but it's not... It's not. I don't think it's a global project. And, and part of that is because of this idea of the pluriverse. And there's many people who argue that, you know, there's the world of the third. There's, you know, the informal se- sector of people that have been, you know... Um, uh, dispossessed of their land and forced into these super exploitative labor conditions in the global south but that's not everyone there's also been a whole lot of people that have managed to resist and and sort of identify themselves as the world of the third that they hadn't been penetrated by capitalism and so therefore they have nothing to degrowth that they had continued to you know um to live um, often um, in contested spaces, but they've they've maintained some space. So degrowth doesn't always, I think, take in that sort of um, global south perspective, and 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 can sometimes sort of be um, talked about like it's yeah across the sort of world where um, you know it, it can silence some of these other um, important views. Um, and on on um, The care sector, look, I mean, all I can say is that I um, don't see this as an either, either or at all. Um, I think that, you know, and I think you're probably best placed to answer the question in in the work that you do, um, in how to advocate for better, um, you know, a a better situation for the current care services that are already existing. I mean, that is without a doubt shameful, um, you know, has been... uh, Yeah, there's so much work to be done there. What I'm saying is definitely not to say, well, you know, just let's get rid of it. Um, But I am saying that, um, you know, the commodification of care um, we can't stop there um, and let's keep going to instead of seeing something as care that has been um, um, eroded and has been devalued for so long why don't we use that as a whole new ontology to reposition the transition and where we end up around so definitely not either or
0: so can we just stick with that for a moment? I'm just going to use my moderator's prerogative here. Um, one of the things that's common to what you've all said is that wage labour, payment for wages is never the full story, right? There's either, as Claire says, it's because, well, when profit is made and surplus is extracted, the employer gets it, or Celeste said, well, there's there's a whole history of unpaid Indigenous labour creating wealth, which is then continued on, or... Always what is hidden is the role of care right, and that is never valued and it can't... but Because um, uh, that's not how the system works. Part of all of that is that if those things were truly valued, we'd be talking about a different system, right? The wage labour as the central organising point only works because all of those things go unpaid or unvalued. So... But also, and this sort of gets a bit to what Chris was saying... Um, some of those things don't necessarily lend themselves to direct payment for service either. Like, it's a different form... It's potentially a different form of labour. So, if you wanted to properly value them, you'd need to change the whole system, right? You can't... Because um, the, the point that you made about wages for housework being an interim step in the campaign, it wasn't like, oh, well, once we've paid, then that's OK, because you're still going to have inequality. You're still going to have gender-based inequality around who does the work and that kind of thing. So what would be some other models that we might take in? I mean, one of them, there's, there's a couple that I've heard floating around and I'd love to hear your thoughts on. One is people talking about a contribution economy. So you have all the free, the free software um, programmers, for example, that are pro- developing the systems that IBM then comes and picks up and turns into its operating systems. But the idea is, well, if you contribute to part of it, you get to use the whole of it, right? And... It's almost getting back to that old um, idea that um, um, so, you know some people probably know it's lineage, but from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs, right yeah. so you get you, you you put in a bit and you get back you, you put in what you can and you get back what you need. Um, others have talked about a more. Uh, UBI universalist system where we'll give everyone a minimum amount of money to deal with this new world where the exchange relation doesn't quite work. Um, but some have said, "Oh, well, can, could inequality still continue under that? We give it, everyone gets because the B in UBI is basic, right? So you get enough to live, but is that enough to live a good life? What could be some new models that might take us forward if we recognise, as you're all arguing, that um, the current system never tells the full story?"
2: I think it's what you're saying and then I think you know there's others there's there's the gift economy there's you know presence just the fact that you're there that things get distributed like there's many different but I think the point in this idea of the pluriverse is that it's that it's varied and there's not one and it's diverse um, and you know and I, and I think that's exciting um, and maybe there's part of it, capitalism maybe is part of that in in as as one of the many but you know I mean I think that's moving a little bit further down the transition. Mm-hmm.
3: Am I allowed to go on to a different topic?
0: Sure. Did you want uh, Yeah, you can say whatever you like. Okay, go
3: Good, because I want to come back to Lydia. <laughs> um, uh, you know, just Uluru's statement, um, the union movement, the, the whole sort of thing. Um, the union movement for a very, very, very long time has put white burly men front and centre in as as its poster children. You know, it's just the hard hats and that whole image of what a real worker is. And I think that in this circumstance what they've done is take, um, exchanged that white man for a black man and then given that black man a lot of funding in order to then go and um, sell something that I also agree is... Is bad for community. Um, in order to build Labor Party power, because by getting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to join up, and telling them the fiction that this is all good for them, without actually giving them giving a lot of these people, and we've talked about needs for translation um, that was missing from the discussions of the Uluru statement itself. But um, you know, without giving the people the the means to to unpack what it is that they're being presented with. Um, that it's really nefarious in the way that it's being used. This man, I'm pointing a finger a lot, but um, to, to come in using this man in order to then advance what is a Labour Party vote and therefore a Labour Party agenda of mining and fracking and destroying environment and whatever else is pretty despicable. Um, how do we deal with that within the union movement? Um, the unions, I, I've, I've given some positive examples through what I've said, but um, unfortunately there's a hell of a lot of work to do. Um, we do have, there is an Indigenous committee that, um, is it, that the ACTU has and a few unions are, um, are represented around the table. But if I think about the unions that I'm a member of versus the one that I work for um, versus the one that I'm a supporter of, all that sort of stuff. Out of all of those unions, only one of them has any form of identification um, available for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander members to self-identify and has structures in place for us to become active Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander unionists within it. So the rest of them aren't necessarily doing that work and they really need to push to engage... I mean, sorry need to be pushed to engage with their Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander workers and start having those conversations in order to start counteracting that message. Because right now, we've got a union that's busy building its power at the cost of what is an already um, disenfranchised commu- and an exploited community and it's pretty despicable.
0: All right, so good time for one last question and then I'll invite the panellists to either respond to that or ignore it or whatever you like, but um, maybe give us your concluding thoughts as well to sum up the panel. Anyone want to ask the last question?
5: Uh, Sort of completely off topic, or not off topic, but um, different area. So much of the economy now seems to be um, devoted to capital rather than wages. I know know we've been talking... uh, agree with almost everything that's been said around um, wages and and, uh, precarious state of work now, but so much is capital, and so much of the the proportion that goes to capital, but also I think uh, I read somewhere, uh, Australia is like the second or third worst country in the world for um, the proportion of wealth that goes to political patronage, so the extractive industries, um, property development, you get a, you get an, you, you get a um, concession or an ability to build a 50-storey apartment. You're instantly, a, you know, you've got $200 million just from a, a click of a decision. Hasn't like that, that, to me, is a, is a huge element of where a lot of the um, uh, inequity comes from in the economy, um, but it hasn't really been a a topic like it's indirectly associated with universal basic income and so some of those things but um, from my perspective would need to change aspects of of that game of mates, the wealth that goes through that decision making and to me that, that is a core part of democracy so I'd be really welcome on any thoughts that you have on steps that need to be taken to address that because unless you sort of start taking the wealth, that is, the tax, the, tax, tax the bastards, if you like, but, but I think there's a very much a focus on income tax, whereas this the lack of tax on the extractive industries, the, the patronage side of it.
0: You must have watched uh, Channel 7 News last night where the Resources Minister, Matt Canavan, is starting to talk about using public money to help reopen Clive Palmer's nickel refinery. Um, can I invite um, some concluding comments from members of the panel?
1: Uh, yeah, that's right. And, I mean, to a to a certain degree, uh, th- that's the reason the union movement has a relationship with the Labor Party is because, they're, they're, you know, the theory there is that workers um, exercise this uh, political power uh, through their party of representation being the Labor Party. Now, that's obviously not how it's working at the moment <laughs> and the Labor Party is as good as any um, in terms of um uh, t- taking significant donations from um, various holders of capital, whether it be the resource industry, the gambling industry uh, property developers et etc um, and then um, you know coincidentally making decisions um, in the in favor of those of those industries so I think you know one of the really simple things and one one of the things that um, Adam and his colleagues at the federal level have been um, prosecuting uh, uh, Larissa as well very um uh, have been prosecuting very intently is the need for uh, donations law, uh, donations reform in federal politics, so just get to get the money get the money out of politics um, in Victoria, we had state donations law reform passed um, just last year, uh, which was good um, although uh, interestingly uh, we had a, a bill to reform a local government come into the parliament in Victoria yesterday. Uh, which was supposed to contain donations law reform, but surprisingly doesn't. Um, so the gambling industry and the property development industry um, will be um, be free to continue to to to, to um, uh, yeah have their influence in in local government. But just w- very briefly, one final comment on on sort of an issue that you um, raised. Uh, which is around um, the relationship between capital and labour. So I think one of the things that's also happening more broadly at the moment um, across the uh, the, uh, global economy is you're actually seeing a disconnect between um, the accumulation of capital and the labour that gets put in. So if you see companies like uh, Uber, for example... Uh, they're worth 60 billion dollars. Um, they they make a loss. They don't make money from the labour of their contractors <laughs> slash employees. Um, their their wealth is being created in a, in another in an, in another way and through different forms uh, than the relationship between um, uh, just between like the labour that is going into their into their business. And similar things are obviously happening in the big tech companies, where in fact our labour. As consumers of those um, products from the tech industries, you know, when, whenever we are going, whenever we look at Facebook, we're providing the labor that creates Facebook's wealth. So this is, you know, there's other things going on here in the global economy that has some pretty significant implications for, um, uh, for the consideration of um, the relationship between capital and 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 labor and how it really kind of comes back to. Broader point so we really need to rethink this concept of work and labor um, and how we organize around it
2: well, j- just to um, say that uh, you know I, I think when we're thinking about the economy I think we're talking about value and what is valued and you know I think um, you know in capitalism there are very particular things that are valued um, but that doesn't mean that in you know other ideas of economy we can't move towards valuing other things um, and, and I think that's exciting. And, um, and there's already so many ways in which people do things that are extremely productive, extremely important, um, but, you know, don't get the attention, don't get the, the value of those, of, those, um, of those activities, those practices. And, and I think that's, there's an exciting place there for us so that, you know, we can start to move away from, you know, a society that thinks that Twiggy Forest, um, you know, has deserved his billions off stolen Aboriginal land, um, you know, enslaving First Nations people um, through CDP, cashless debit card, um, and then he doesn't get to pay he doesn't even have to pay tax, um, p- pays a big donation. And everyone thinks he's amazing because he's, you know, that hard worker. No, he didn't. Um, that's been extracted by so many other people. So it's where we place value and how we understand how value is made, um, I think, is, is important. Yeah.
0: Thanks, everyone. Please join me again thanking our great <laughs> panellists. Thank you.